You can keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 2, although we're going to be spending most of our time on the screen. Um, Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you have sent us your Son. We thank you that we take this day and celebrate that and rejoice in the great gift that you have given us. Father, we thank you and we praise you that in a weary world where there is so little hope, we thank you that you have given us this amazing hope, this great hope, this glorious hope. We thank you, Father, for all that your Son means to us and what he is. We ask, Father, now that you would please be with us as we study and we think and we meditate and we ponder. We pray, Father, that you would stir our heart, you would move our heart, and you would enable us, Father, to really grasp the things that are true, the things that you have done, the things that are historical and the things that are real now, and the glory of who your Son is and what he means to us. Bless and be with us. Help us, we pray, to grasp this miracle. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. This uh, December, I was hoping that we would be able to meditate on the glory of Christ and the glory of the incarnation. And so what I've tried to do this, this year is give you basically a theology of the incarnation, kind of give you a, uh, an understanding of what, what, what is all of the, the truth that is behind uh, this baby that is born in the manger. Now, you remember last week or three weeks ago uh, in this series, I introduced you the idea of incarnation, okay, incarnation. And uh, the incarnation comes from the Latin word carne, which means, carne means meat or flesh. And so we use the phrase carnivore, and a carnivore is a, somebody who devours flesh, a flesh-eating being, as it were. And that's how the word carne is used. So incarnation means enfleshment, means taking on flesh. And you see this doctrine of the incarnation in the scriptures. And we've, we've looked at these in this series, John 1.1. 1, 1. For instance, when John begins his book, he writes this, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now look at all the past tenses up there. Was, was, was. There actually was called imperfect tenses in Greek, which is continuous action in the past. In the beginning, if you go to the beginning of time, before anything was created, before time itself began, before anything, you get all the way up there, as it were, all the way back there in the beginning, uh, there is a past tense, the word was, the word is existing. And the word was with God in the beginning, and the word was God in the beginning. And so you have this complex, amazing person called the word introduced. John goes on to say that all things were created through him, and there's nothing that was made that was not made through the word. But then in John 1.14, John says this, and the word became flesh, and there's incarnation right there. The word became flesh. The word takes on human flesh and dwelt among us. And by the way, that's an interesting word, dwelt. The word actually means to tent or to tabernacle. And it, John is taking his readers all the way back to the Old Testament tabernacle when the tent was set up and then God's glory came and God dwelt in the midst of the camp. And here he's using that same terminology and he's saying that the word, this eternal word who was with God in the beginning and was God, this eternal word became a human being. He became flesh and he tabernacled, he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. This is John speaking as a historical witness. 
We saw him. We beheld his glory. We saw the glory that was in him, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus comes to the world. The word comes to the world. God sends his son to the world. And one of his purposes was to reveal the Father. And so John in that same chapter then says in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And so Jesus comes to earth, he's the word, he takes on flesh, he becomes a human being, and as a human being, we see and we behold the glory of God in him. And of course, this was part of a master plan, and this is what we looked at three weeks ago. This is part of a master plan. Remember, we were looking through the book of John, and it says that God sent his son. God sent his son into the world. And the, 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 the word, the son, he comes into the world. He follows, his, he does what his father would have him to do. And remember, we saw that the, that the father had given the son a people. And, and Jesus said, those whom the father has given me, I've come to save. And, 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 he, and, and he, there's this plan that's, that's unfolding. And we saw that that plan was going to actually involve the crucifixion of Jesus. That the, before the creation of the world, this plan exists of redemption and crucifixion. And we looked at that and we said, why would God do that? And that's what we looked at three weeks ago when we saw the hidden reservoir of God's grace and mercy and love. This mysterious, wonderful, glorious thing about God, his grace, can only be seen in the context of sin and fall and sacrifice and cross. Then last week, we looked at what he gave up. What he gave up to become incarnate, what he gave up to become flesh. And we looked at his pre-incarnate glory, that Jesus lived in glory. And he said, Father, restore me now to my glory in John 17. Restore me now to my glory. I've done the work that you've given me to do. Restore me. And Jesus lived for billions and billions and trillions and trillions of years. He lived eternity past in absolute glory. He lived in heaven. He lived in what he called paradise. He lived it, it with, with majesty and, and the praise of angels. He lived with, where his will was sovereignly carried out and delightfully carried out. He lived in joy, the joy of heaven. He lived in the peace of heaven. He lived in the, the harmony of heaven, the glory, the beauty. He lived in that, and he had all of his needs. He lived in the safety of heaven, the security of heaven, the grace and the wonder of heaven, and he gave it all up for us. Philippians chapter 2 uh, remember, we looked at this, this person last week. Who, though he was in the form of God, so there's the word was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. Remember, he, took, he emptied himself of all of his glory. He gave it all up. He was a rich man. He was so rich, he gave it all up and became poor. In fact, Paul uses that very language in 2 Corinthians 8 9, where Paul says this, For you know that the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ... Now, there's that focus on that hidden reservoir of grace. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, here he's thinking of his pre-incarnate glory, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So that's what we've looked at so far in this great plan of redemption and, and the great theology of this incarnation of this baby. What I want to do is finish this up today by asking, we've looked at what he gave up. I want, to, I want to look at this morning and meditate on this thought, what he took on, what he took on. 
what he took on. Now, what do I mean by that, what he took on? Well, I'm referring to what, what, what people take on for the sake of other people. They, if, if you have a relationship with somebody, in one way or another, you're going to take on something by that relationship. So, for instance, when somebody gets married, they take on a spouse. And when they take on a spouse, along with that comes another person. And that person, and you have certain need, you have certain responsibilities and, and duties that you do. You know, you protect one another, you provide for one another, you love one another, you support one another, you encourage one another. And that, that person, you take on that person. And if you get married and God blesses your union with children, and then you have this new baby. And you just, when you've got this new baby, and thankfully God makes them just absolutely incredibly cute because they're a lot of work. And you take that on. You take on the baby, okay? And so you take on, like once again, protecting, providing, feeding. You go through teething. You change diapers. You, you train them. You grow them up. You, you instruct them. You guide them. And so what do you do? You've, you've taken this person on. You've taken on. That's what I mean by taking on. Now, let's, let's, let's take it to the next level here. What if a person has great needs and you take that person on? Then there's even more of a sense of what you're taking on. For instance, think of a handicapped child. Think of a handicapped child. And think of what you take on with a handicapped child or a child that becomes sick and has dramatic medical needs. I know of people that, that have taken on children where they, they had to have feeding tubes or they had to have um, respirators or they had to something else. And the parents were up and down all night long caring and taking care of this child or the, the needs of this child. Think of, think of people who take on people who have Alzheimer's and have to watch them constantly and lock the doors and make sure that the, the stove is shut off and make sure that, and, and reminding them who they are. When you take on that person, you're taking on all of those things that come with them. And I, I know that what you're doing right now, and I hope what you're doing right now, is you're, you're thinking, okay, he's talking about what Jesus took on, what Jesus took on. So let's keep building on that. Let's keep building on that. Now let's think of what people take on because of sin in the other person. Let's think about that. Maybe, maybe uh, uh, you have a relationship with somebody, and that person is very irresponsible, or that person is very selfish, and all of a sudden, they have taken on all kinds of debt. And because of your relationship, it may be a spouse, it may be a child, maybe something, you then must take on that debt too because of the debt that they took on. And I've known people where the, uh, one person, whether it's credit card debt or it's, it's silliness with taxes or it's fines or whatever they get, there's this huge debt. And then the other person, because they've taken this person on, takes on that debt with them. And maybe even will have to work a second job in order to pay off that debt. And for years, and, and at the end of the work day, and they're tired, and they just want to go home, they just want to put their feet up, they can't, they have to go to their second job because of the debt of their spouse or somebody else that they are also taking on to help pay that off. And it could take years. Think of somebody whose child is a drug addict or an alcoholic. And again, you know, being in pastoral ministry as long as I have been, you run, you've, we've, we've seen lots of, we've seen cases. I know individual people, they come to my mind now over these last 40-some years that have had this issue where they have a, a, a relative, maybe a spouse or a child who's a drug addict 
or who, who is an alcoholic. And, and so for years, because they have a relationship with that person, they take so much of that on. They take on the lies, the lies. You, you're, you're married or you have a child who's a drug addict. There's lies all the time. Lies, lies, lies. Why weren't you at work? What does it, where's it, where did this, you take on stealing. You're stolen from. You take on uh, arrests. They're arrested. You get called in the middle of the night. They've been arrested. You go down. Then that means trials. You take that on. You take off work and you go and you sit and you're sitting at the trial and you're the spouse or you're the relative of the person who's been put on trial. And so you take on that shame. You take on jails. You take on prisons. I knew, I, I, I knew somebody once who told me, I know every single prison waiting room in a hundred mile radius because their loved one was a drug addict and was arrested and they had to go visit them in prison. You take that on because you have a relationship with them. And then there's rehab and the cost of rehab and you pay for the rehab and then they go to the rehab and then six months later they're rehabbed and you bring them home and then within three months they're using again, the lies starting, the steals start, the stealing starts, the arrest start, the jail starts, the lawyers start, the, the trial starts, the prison starts and it starts all over again. And people take this on. They're taking on, because of their relationship with somebody else, they're taking all of that pain, all of that difficulty, all of that frustration, all of that needless. I'm sure there are times where they say, just kick him out, just be done with him, just divorce him, just get rid of him. They, they feel that, but they don't. They keep taking it on. Let's think of another one. I'll, I'll do this one by way of parable. Think of a child. Well, in fact, I'll tell you a true story, and it's, this isn't a parable, but then I'll build on this. Think of a child. I have a friend. I have a friend, and he, um, he said to me, he has one arm, okay? The other arm is a, is a prosthesis. It's a hook, okay? And so I heard the story of why he has one arm, okay? And why he has one arm is, is that he was going out with some of his friends, and he said, the very last thing that my mother said to me was, do not drink and drive, and do not get in a car with anybody who's drinking and driving. And he said, and, I, and within hours, I completely defied what she said. And I was in the car, somebody else was driving. The car gets in a horrendous accident. Bodies are flying out, and he actually ends up coming conscious, hanging in a tree upside down. And in his blurry, drunken state, he looks and he says, what is that hanging in the tree five feet away from me? And then as he became clear in his vision, he realized it was his arm, okay? And this young man was actually on track to play at least minor league hockey, and his, everything was done. And it was because he defied his parents. Now, I want you to picture in your mind somebody who defies a parent like that, goes out, drinks, gets in a car accident, and is now paralyzed. And for the rest of their life, they're in a wheelchair. For the rest of their life, their, their needs need to be met by others. Their toilet needs and those food, uh, job, provision need to be met by other people. And imagine, because I have met people like this, imagine people in that kind of situation who are very bitter, very angry, very arrogant, very arrogant. 
as if it was everybody else's fault that they were in that wheelchair. And imagine a parent has to deal now with this person for the rest of their life, take on, and when they do, and they take on, now we gotta, we gotta extend all of our doorways, we've gotta have ramps now, we've gotta change the entire plumbing in the toilet and bathroom so that this, his needs can be met. We have to feed him every day, we have to watch it, we have to put him in bed at night, we have to change, and we have to take care of his toilet needs for the rest of our lives. Why, parents are taking that on because it's their child and they're gonna take it on and they're gonna do that. And the whole time he's kind of mean and he's bitter and he's kind of nasty and he's hard to live with and such, and they're taking that on. This is what I mean by taking on. Imagine taking on the needs of somebody who isn't even your child. Leper colonies. Leper colonies where they, 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 they took, put all kinds of leprosy people in, in certain areas. There have been missionaries, there have been missionary doctors who have moved into these leper colonies to take care of these lepers because nobody will take care of their needs and eventually contract the disease and die of the disease itself. That's taking on the needs of other people. People who move into poor areas to help the poor and the needy and to be a part of their lives and incarnate themselves as it were amongst them. People who go into war zones in order to take care of the needy. That's what I mean by taking on. So now let's look at and let's think and let's think for a moment here of what Jesus actually took on. What he actually took on. He gave up everything. He gave up heaven and he came to earth and he took on, he took on people, he took on the world. He took on the world in one very real sense. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He took on the entire world. He took on fallen humanity. He took on our needs. He took on our problems. He took on our sin. He took on the old children, uh, the children of old Adam. He took on, and he took on the needs. It, it, you could get more specific like John did where John says, the Father, Jesus says, the Father gave me these. All that the Father has given me, I will not lose one. All that the Father has given me will come to me, and I will not turn them aside. And, and he took on these people. He took on people who were in the reign of death, in the reign of sin, in, in guilty, condemned, languishing in darkness, languishing under the power of Satan, languishing in a fallen world. He took that all on. He didn't have to take it on. But he took it all on. And that specifically will focus on right now two things. Number one, he took on humanity. He, he had to take on humanity. You see, dear friends, we are human and we need, we are in a broken relationship with God. And so in order for him to repair this, as it were, he had to take on humanity. And that is what we're celebrating in, in a sense today. But it's a very, very mysterious thing. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul writes this. And without controversy, great, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, let's look at that phrase for a second. Without any controversy, nobody's going nobody's gonna, to nobody's gonna challenge this. Great is the mystery of godliness. And what does he mean by that? Well, look at just the first line. God was manifested in the flesh. Now, Paul says that this manifestation, this incarnation of God in the flesh, is an incontroversial, above board, no one can question, huge mystery that God takes on flesh. And dear friends, it's true. Just, just think about it a little bit. Jesus Christ is the Word, and He is God, and He is eternal, and He gives up all of that, and He comes to earth, and He becomes 
fully human. Jesus is not half human. Jesus is not half God and half human. Jesus is fully God and fully human. He takes on absolute 100% humanity. He takes on a body. The eternal, almighty God, majestic, the, the infinite God, the infinite word, the eternal word takes on a human body. He takes on skin. God takes on skin. God takes on blood vessels. God takes on bones. God takes on a heart. God takes on lungs. God takes on kidneys. God takes on a liver. God takes on a spleen and pancreas. God takes on nerve endings. God takes on a body. And the infinite, almighty, eternal God now, and we're all feeling it this morning, that human body has certain bodily needs. And what we're feeling this morning, which besides sleep and hunger you may be feeling this morning, is the need for warmth. The need for warmth. We all have the need for warmth over the last 48 hours. We had to have furnace burning something. We had to have, we hoped that thing was going to keep going. Hope the electricity wasn't going to go out like happened to my daughter down in Charlotte. Hope the electricity doesn't go out and the thing starts getting freezing cold. We have, the, we are such frail, fragile people. We got to be burning stuff right now, whether it's gas or oil or firewood or whatever. We got to keep burning stuff just to keep ourselves warm so that we don't freeze it. The eternal God through whom all things were created, galaxies were created, took on a human body that needed warmth. It needed water. It needed hydration. He needed food regularly. He needed rest. He took on all of that. He took on a human body. He took on a human soul and personality. He became a human person fully, not just body. He wasn't just a body that was sort of invaded by deity. He was more than that. He was a full human being with all of the range of human emotion and human feelings, human temptation, human struggle, all of that. He took all of that on and became fully God and was fully God and became fully man in one person. And this is why Paul says, without controversy, this is a great mystery, but it's a glorious mystery. And dear friends, we cannot, we have a hard time grasping because just even using a word infinite just blows our minds. We can't go very far with the word infinite. We don't even have the mental capacity to handle a concept like infinite. Infinite? What's infinite? A line that goes on and on and on and on and on and on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever is an infinite line. And not just starts here and it goes that way, it starts here and goes that way, and it's infinite. An infinite plane then goes all forever and ever and ever that way and that way and that way and that way. A three-dimensional infinite thing goes up there forever and ever, down there, never, ever stopping, no limits that way, no limits that way, no limits, all the way, no limits, no limits, keep going to your head, keep going to your head, and finally your brain gets sore, and you said, I can't even think of this anymore. I can't even think of this anymore. And so we have an absolutely, infinitely majestic, perfect, pure, glorious, all-powerful, all-knowing being, the Word who is God becomes a human being becomes a finite human being. It's like that's, that's a greater distance than a king becoming a beggar. There's nothing compared to this. 
That's, that's the, the distance between an archangel becoming a homeless person in, a, in an urban area somewhere. That's, that's nothing compared to this. This is a great and wonderful mystery. This is why angels burst out into song, is that he came into and he took on humanity. He took on humanity. He took on the human condition, too. He took on the human condition. He came into a sinful world. He came into our fallen, sinful world. He came from heaven where no one is mean. And he came to earth where lots of people are mean. And everybody's mean at some point. He, he came from a place where people were, there was harmony and joy and oneness and closeness. It, he, that's why he called it paradise. And he came to a place where people are nasty and people will lie and they're ugly. They'll backbite and they'll, they'll stab you in the back. He came to a place of eternity. He came to a place where there never was such a thing as death. There's no hospitals, no funeral homes, there's no disease, there's no sickness. He came from there, that's heaven. It's all eternal, it's all glorious. They don't even think, they don't even worry about death. Death is non-existent. And he came into a world where people die, where people get sick, where people get murdered, where, where governments oppress and, and destroy and, and hurt and kill. And he came as a, as, a, as a peasant. He came as somebody who was under the dominion of another government, the Roman government. He came among, and lived amongst an oppressed people. He entered into that human condition. He took all of that on. He didn't need to, but he did. Now, why is this significant that he did this? And we're just talking about his humanity at this point. We're not even talking about our sins and our guilt. We're just talking about his humanity. You see, he had to take this on because human beings sinned. Human beings had the dilemma. Human beings were fallen. Yes, the world has fallen. Yes, the animals eat, destroy and eat each other. Yes, there's such a thing as mosquitoes. Yes, there's all these things. Yes, there's all, the, there's all this, this, this cataclysmic chaos that, that, that is made up of this, of this cosmos and everything. Yes, there is all that. But that fell, according to the Bible, through Adam. That fell because of man. That fell because of human beings. But what really needed to be rescued here... Besides the cosmos, which Jesus will renew, Colossians 2 teaches us that, he, re he re reconciled all of this to the Father. But the focus, the focus is on these human beings. These human beings need rescuing. The first Adam failed. The first Adam failed, and so we need a second Adam. And the only reason why God could incarnate human beings... See, God could not have incarnated. Jesus could not have come down... He, not that he would want to, but in order to save the animals, for instance. I know people love their dogs. I know they love their cats. I know they love their pets. But Jesus would never have incarnated an animal. He never would have incarnated a horse. He never would have incarnated a hippopotamus. He never would have incarnated a whale. He never would have been able to incarnate an eagle. Why? None of those are created in the image of God. He was able to incarnate human beings because human beings have been created in the image of God. In, in that sense, they're, they're little mini models of the, of the divine. And he was able to, they're not divine, but they're in the image bearers of it. And, and because of that, the divine can, can embody and can, and can incorporate and can come in, incarnate to human beings. And we, as human beings, we needed a mediator between God and man. And so Paul, who in the passage we just saw before said, great is the controversy of mystery, of the mystery is the mystery of godliness. God manifested in the flesh, referring to Jesus as God manifested in the flesh. One chapter earlier in 1 Timothy 2 said this, 
For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, the next chapter, he's going to call Jesus God, but here he's focusing on his humanity. Jesus became a human being to be that perfect mediator between God and man. He's fully God, and he's fully man. And he is going to reconcile together God and man. Great is the mystery of godliness. And how does he do that? He does that by not only taking on our humanity, he does that by taking on our guilt. He does that by paying our debt. He does that by taking our sin. We are sentenced to death. He is executed in our place. And that's why the book of Isaiah says that he bore our sins and our sorrows. Now go back to my illustrations of the people, the spouse who goes into debt, who goes crazy with the credit card, goes tens of thousands of dollars in debt, and then suddenly it becomes known, and now the other spouse says, well, my name's on all that debt too. That's all my debt too. Now I gotta go get an extra job to help pay for that debt. That's what Jesus did for us. Jesus took on our debt. Jesus said, I'll take that debt. I'll pay those bills. Give them to me, I'll pay your debt. You're going to jail, I'll go to jail for you. You need to be executed, I'll be executed for you. I will take your sins. Give your sins to me. I will pay your debt. I will satisfy God's justice. I will take the wrath that you deserve. I will take that on. So he takes on our humanity, and then he takes on our guilt and debt. Really, what are we saying here? What are we saying here? We're saying here that he took on you. He took on you. See, these aren't theological concepts. They are, but that's not what they only are. He took on humanity. He's incarnated. He took on our debt. He's, he's the atonement. He's the sacrifice. He took in our place. He, that's all theological. It's all true. It's all theological truth. But the bottom line is, when you get down to it, he took on you. That's what he did. And so you say, well, why is this person taking on this person's debt? Why is this person wheeling this person in a wheelchair? Why is this person bringing this Alzheimer's patient into their own home? Why are they doing that? It's because they have a relationship. And if you were to say to each one of those people, cut them off, cut them off, let them live with their own response, let them live, and they say, no, I, I, no, I'm not. Why? It's my wife. It's my son. It's my mother. It's my dad. I'm not going to do that. I have a relationship. I love them. I'm going to do this. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus left heaven. Jesus gave up his rights as, 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 as God. He did not consider equality with God something to grasp. Jesus gave up his glory. Jesus left paradise. Jesus took on humanity. Jesus took on all of our needs as a, in the human body. Jesus took on all of our sin. Jesus took on all of our debt. Why? Because he took on you. He took on me. That's why Paul could say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. There's the union between Paul and Jesus. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. There's the union between Paul and Jesus. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Then look at the next line. Who loved me and gave himself for me. This is not a mere theological exercise for Paul. He loved me, and he gave himself for me. 
the very Son of God loved me and took me on. Remember I showed you how a person taking on a spouse or taking on a child or taking on a handicapped child or taking on a, 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 a leper colony or taking on somebody who takes on, takes on, takes on. Paul is saying here, Jesus took on me. He loved me and he gave himself for me and he took on me. And dear ones, if you are here today and you are trusting in Christ as your Savior, you can say, he took on me. Not just humanity, not just the world. Praise God he did all that. Not just all the needy, not just the millions that no man can number. Praise God he did all of that. But he took on me. He took on my sin. He took on my debt. He took on my frailty. He became a human being because I have been found as a human being in this human dilemma, this human drama. I am found lost. I am found prone to death. I am found sinful. I am found in a broken relationship with God. I am found under the reign of sin, the reign of Satan, the reign of death. And he came and took me on and took all of that from me who loved me and gave himself for me, Paul says. And dear friends, this is why the angels sang. This is why the angels sang. Look in chapter 2. If you still have chapter 2 in front of you that Dan read, look at verse 10. Remember the shepherds? The shepherds are out there, and it's nighttime, and they don't have no flashlights. They don't have no LED stuff. They don't have anything. They're, they've got a, 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 embers of a fire, and they've got stars, and maybe there's a moon out, but they don't have anything else like that. They might have to throw and put a stick in there to get a little bit of light, and all of a sudden, poof, somebody turned on the stadium lights. Poof, and there's an angel there. And they're absolutely, absolutely scared to death. Look at verse 9. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Poof! Stadium lights went on. And they were greatly afraid, needless to say. Verse 10. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid. We're not here to harm you. This light is not here to harm you. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. That's angel language for this is super big and super exciting and super great, which will be for all people. For there is, now notice the language here. There is born to you. There is born to you. This isn't, this isn't vague general theological concepts to these guys. It is born to you this day. In the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And dear friends, I want you to look at that statement again. First of all, look at the personal nature of it. This is born to you this day in the city of David. And you know who's born today in the city of David? Right over there in Bethlehem. You know who's born right over there in Bethlehem? A Savior. Somebody to save you and rescue you. And you know who that Savior is? He's the Messiah. So guys, start going through your mental calculations and go back through your entire Old Testament and go back through the promises to Adam and Eve, the promises to Abraham, the promise of the line of the tribe of Judah. Go back through your mind and think through of all of the prophecies of, of, of Moses. Think through the, of the tabernacle. Think through of the temple. Think through of the sacrifices. Think through of the high priest. Think through of the promises of a Davidic king. Think through of David, the kingdom that will last forever. Think through Daniel, all of the promises that are going to come of this, of this rock that is going to grow into a mountain and take over the world. Think of Isaiah. Think of all that. He's born in Bethlehem right over there. And he's Christ the Lord. Now, also, now, now reread that sentence. 
But think of this sentence now as absolute, pure, straightforward, historical reality. There is born to you this day in that city right over there, Bethlehem, a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord. The, the mystery of godliness has just taken place, and it's right over there, God in manifested in human form. Verse 12. Look at how simple, beautiful, sincere. Look at but how, how, how powerful this is, verse 12. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe. I've just given you all of this rich theology and all of this rich identity of this person. He's going to be a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. He's in a hay rack. He's in a feed trough. He's lying there. And the wonder of this, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, God manifested in the flesh. The wonder of it captures the heart of thousands upon thousands of angels. And suddenly they appear. Look at verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. The word heavenly host there, by the way, means army. Heavenly army. Praising God and saying, and notice what they say, glory to God in the highest for what he's done in giving the son Jesus. And on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. Listen to the mystery and the wonder of this. Have you grasped the mystery and wonder? And this is just the beginning. He's going to live among us. He's going to grow. He's going to grow into being a man. He's going to then teach. He's going to walk on water. He's going to raise people from the dead. Jairus' daughter is going to hold her hand. She's going to pop up and she's going to stand up. He's going to tell the wind to stop blowing and it's going to obey. He's going to tell the waves to lay down and they're going to lay down. He's going to feed 5,000 plus people, 5,000 men plus women and children with a few loaves of bread. He's going to touch people that have leprosy and their skin is going to be bright and fresh and clear. He's going to touch people that are blind and they're going to instantly see. People born blind are going to be able to see. Lame people are going to be lowered down before him and he's going to heal them and they're going to, he's, he's going to jump up and grab grab up his thing, and walk out of the place. And he's going to do that to multitudes and multitudes and multitudes so that he's going to have to leave town, and he's going to teach. And then he's going to be arrested. He's going to be whipped. He's going to be executed. He's going to be nailed. He's going to hang naked. And then they're going to wait, and then he's going to die. And then they're going to put his dead body into a tomb. And then three days later, that dead body is going to come alive. And humanity comes alive. Humanity beats death. Humanity overcomes death. He comes out with DNA. He comes out with human chromosomes. He comes out in his human body. And that night he says, hey, you guys got any food? Let me eat some food. Look, it's me. I'm eating. Does a ghost eat? Here, give me some honey. Give me some fish. Give me some Here, look. Look at my hands. You want to see the, the side? Here's my side right here. It's me. It's me. Humanity has now overcome death and beat death. And then he ascends into heaven. And then he's once again placed in the place of all power and all of authority. And what Adam was supposed to be, Jesus now becomes. And at the right hand of the throne of the Father, once again is the Word. And yet he is now the Word made flesh. And humanity is glorified. And humanity now rules the, the universe. Humanity now rules the universe. That's what Adam was supposed to do. The second Adam has done it. 
And he's coming again. And we will share in his glory. And we will have glorified bodies like him. He has a glorified body right now. He's impervious to death. He's impervious to disease. He'll never die. He can defeat death. Death actually has nothing to invade. Nothing to invade in heaven. Not including him. And a new heavens and a new earth is coming where death will be absolutely powerless. There will nothing to invade because we'll have these glorious bodies. In Philippians 3, Paul says this. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, that it may be conformed to his glorious body. There's glorified humanity, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. You know what's amazing? When he went to heaven, was glorified, the first thing he receives from the Father is the Holy Spirit. And he pours out the Holy Spirit upon the world. And you know why that's kind of wild? You know why that's kind of wild? Because if he doesn't do that, guess what we would have done? We would have never accepted his help. I don't need him. (laughs) I don't need him dying for me. You know, I'm really not that bad. You know, everybody sins. You know, but, but, but I truly think my good has, has outweighed my bad, certainly. You know, I, I can do this salvation thing by myself. In fact, who even asked him to come into my life? He needs to bug off. That would have been our response. That's the response of people still to this day. That would have been our response. And so after taking on human flesh, after leaving the heaven, after living amongst us, after teaching us, showing us the Father, after dying for us, after rising in from the dead, after ascending into heaven, he had to send the Holy Spirit to give us the new birth, to give us a new heart, to open our eyes, to open our ears, to help us to respond, to give us ears that will hear in order that we would embrace him. Do you know what that means? That means that this whole salvation thing is all of grace. It's all of God. It's all God just loving us and being good to us. It's God making us, renewing us, saving us, adopting us, sending his son to die for us, preparing a place for us, a new heavens and a new earth where we will share in his glory. What love. What grace. What dignity that gives us. What hope. What good news. And this is why the angel says, Behold, I bring you good tidings. There's a hymn that says, A weary world rejoices. Dear friends, we live in a weary, weary world. A weary world that desperately needs this good news. We live in a sad and broken world. We live in a world that is fragmented and, 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 is, it, and is growing, it seems to be growing worse in our very day and age. People are hopeless. People are despairing. We live in a world that has a, a, a value system and a belief system now that, that, is un, that cannot sustain a culture. And we're realizing that now. People are depressed. 
And we have no way of ascribing to them any dignity. We have no way of giving them any hope. We have no way of giving them a purpose. They're here by chance and a thing that happened by chance and eventually the sun is cooling and the sun will eventually cool and it will lose the gravitational force of the earth and the earth will just launch off into space and will freeze into a solid ice ball and all of our accomplishments and all that we've done will never be known, will never mean anything. And will be, that's, that's the world view that people have to live in. And so they have to find an identity and they have to find purpose and meaning because they're told there is no purpose and meaning. And so they have to find that and they have to make that and they have to find an identity for themselves. And we're literally putting on their shoulders the weight of God. They must now be God because there is no God. And they're discouraged and they're frightened and they're trying to stay distracted with material possessions and with pleasures and with things like this. And they're weary, and they're committing suicide, and they're taking drugs, and they're on antidepressants. And it's so sad, this weary world. And here is this good news. God's son came to save. God's son came to save you. God's son gave to give you new life. There's hope. There's eternity. There's a future. There's a new heavens and new earth. There's a human at the right hand of the throne of the Father who is also fully God, who can be a high priest who you can turn to and you can pray, who promises to give you everlasting life, who will never leave you or forsake you, and who will even be with you in your day of death so that you will literally fall asleep in Jesus. And you will be with him in paradise. To die is gain, and I will be with him. Dear friends, this is hope. This is hope. Tell the good news. Tell the world. Live it out. Embrace it for yourself. In a world that is weary, be a people of joy. Not a superficial, silly happiness. Joy. Deep, deep, confident joy. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray together. Oh, dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can talk to you even now at the right hand of your Father. We just want to pause and we want to say thank you. We know that you are alive and we know that you are there. We know that you are our high priest. You even represent us right now before him. We know that you are glorified. We know that when we die, we will be with you instantly. To be absent from this body will be present with you. And we know that we are not just projecting our psychological needs to the ceiling of this building, but we are talking to Almighty God. And we just need to say to you, thank you. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the first Christmas morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you gave up all your rights and became a little baby. Thank you for the wonder, the glory, the beauty, the majesty, the greatness, not only of this story of your incarnation, but of your crucifixion, of your resurrection, of your glorification, of your coming again of a new heaven and new earth. We thank you and we praise you that we have been brought into this. We thank you and we praise you that by your grace and mercy you have opened our eyes. And, oh, Father, we pray for this world that you love, 
We pray for those who are dwelling in darkness and depression and sadness and emptiness and have no answers. We pray, Father, please, please. But by your grace, that would be us. Please have mercy upon them, we pray. Show them Jesus. Show them Jesus. Open their eyes. Help them to hear his voice and help them to flee to him for all that they need, for salvation, for life, for light, for eternal life, for identity, for meaning, for purpose, for happiness, for a future, for joy. Oh, Father, we pray, send forth your gospel around this sad and weary world that you would be glorified and we will sing and join with the angels. We praise you and we worship you, Lord Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen.